I thought um, what we would mainly do today is talk about um, Peeping Tom uh, with respect to some of the material, the psychoanalytic material you've read. Um, I'm not, the syllabus has more reading on it than I'm actually going to give you. I figure it's the end of a long year. Um, so the last thing you should read is the Melanie Klein essay, Love, Guilt, and Reparation. Um, but the stuff on the syllabus after that, don't worry about and um, as I mentioned before, um, what you should be thinking about tonight when you go see The Vanishing is um, MacGuffins. And um, not egg McMuffins, but MacGuffins. And um, the question, and, and that's always an interesting question, and interesting questions have a way of appearing on finals. Or maybe you don't think so. I think so. Um, the question that I want to start out with today is, if you were trying to talk about the MacGuffin and Peeping Tom, what would it be? Yeah. <laughs> that was a fat. That's, that, that's a quick answer. Yes, Simon. Uh, would it be what they see in the camera before they die? Okay, but so that's what we find out at the very end, right? That um, it turns out that... Sorry, I'm trying to do... Um, thank God I'm not trying to chew gum also. Um, oh, yeah, let me just log in. Um, at the very end, it turns out that, that they do see something that we didn't know they were seeing, which is what? Which is themselves as they die. It's the face of death. Yeah, um, that is that there's the um, convex mirror. Um, no, I guess the concave mirror that they see. Oh, stop it. Oh. Playing Brandeis like everyone else in the world spells it, which is wrong. Um, okay, I think that'll work. Yay. Peeping Tom. Um, please. Loading, watch now. And power on. All right. Uh, can you see if the pro if the projector doesn't come on? Can you figure out what I did wrong? <laughs> um, yeah. But how many people knew? How many people thought of that as a MacGuffin? That is, how many of you were wondering what they were seeing when they died? Was that an issue for you during the movie? It was for you, Ben. Um, so for two or three of you, but mainly, what did we assume they were seeing from the start? <laughs> What do we assume they were seeing from the start? <coughs> yeah, although, so how many people thought from the start that what they were seeing was a bayonet or something of the sort? Um, okay, so you were wondering, but you also assumed yeah. from the start. Okay, interesting. So that's, a, that's actually fascinating. So it's a MacGuffin that you both know and don't know um, from the start. Um, so when is it, do you remember when it is that we first actually see the bayonet? that we realized, um, not that we realized, that we get confirmation that that's what they're seeing is the knife that's killing them? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So there first the first thing we see is just to just to recollect how the movie works. Um, the first thing we see is him. Um, let's go back to the very beginning. Um, the first thing we see is his point of view through the camera. Um, and um, so we don't see him. We're just seeing his point of view as he is following the prostitute. Then the credits come up and we see that again, but now uh, more precisely from his point of view. Um, later on, we see that what happens is that, um, that his camera has a kind of tripod, except the tripod has what looks like a fourth leg, and the fourth leg is, sorry, is a knife. Yeah. Um, do you remember what his job is? What is it? Were you raising your hand? No, you were just amazed by the YouTube you were watching. Okay. Um, yeah. He measures the um, distance between the subject and the camera for focus. Yeah, he's a focus puller. Um, and so what he's always doing is measuring distances between the subject and the camera. So that distance, the space between the subject and the camera, is um, part of what he's both measuring and covering. But um, what, let's, I guess let's ask the question this way. Why is it that um, Michael Powell wants that to be his job? I mean, you can tell that there's nothing in this movie that's accidental. Um, there's nothing in the movie that um, isn't supposed to be, whether you're a Freudian or not, there's nothing in the movie that isn't supposed to feed into some kind of consistent symbolism. Um, that is, uh, just to make the general um, assertion, whether you think, and I, I expect some of you were just completely outraged by the um, Freud and the, fe and the Fenichel especially, yes, no? Did the uh, the Fenichel essay on um, scoptophilia, where he goes, he talks about every single idea that you could ever imagine about an eye, um, and why it's all sexual in every way that you can imagine any kind of sexuality. That one. Um, were you outraged? Were you convinced? Were you God? I didn't know half that stuff. That's really interesting. So, any of you voracious readers? <laughs> Do you remember this? Should I do the turn, your turn my back on you thing? Okay. How many people got a chance, just cough, if you got a chance to read the auto Fanishal essay? <laughs> well, 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 well. Note for the final exam. Just write OF. Don't tell them what that stands for. <laughs> OF. Um, how many of you had a chance to read Instincts and Their Vicissitudes? <laughs> well, well, isn't this funny? Um, how many want to watch some of the YouTubes that you made for your midterm papers instead? <laughs> yeah, wrong answer. No, the right answer is, we're going to read it, but tell us. Um, all right, let's, um, did you read it, did, or did you cough, or do you not want me to ask you? If you turn around, I'll cough, or not. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be interesting. <laughs> Um, this is like those logical puzzles about perfect reasoners. Um, okay, let's see. Um, let's, okay, so let's try this in a completely different way. Um, try to imagine, um, no matter how outrageous it is, um, try to imagine 
everything that some um, over-the-top Freudian might say about the relation of vision to sexuality, and you can use Peeping Tom as, um, as source material for some of the things that an over-the-top Freudian might say about vision and sexuality. So things, just, you know, imagine um, parodying Freud um, and see if you can say anything as outrageous as, as and, or let us say, as um, stimulating and amazing and exciting um, as what Freudian psychoanalysis actually says. Um, so what are some of the things that you might imagine the person who made Peeping Tom might have been reading about in the psychoanalytic literature? So I sometimes teach a course on fairy tales. And one of the pleasures of teaching a course on fairy tales is to do, is to do the Freudian reading of fairy tales. Um, and one way to do the Freudian reading of fairy tales is to um, just ask people to read some kind of, any paragraph from any fairy tale in a sexy voice. And um, it's amazing how any fairy tale read in a sexy voice, it's like, oh, stop it, um, because it's so obviously there. Um, have you ever tried this? Here, let me, let me dig up. Um, do you all know the Hans Christian Andersen story, the, the um, tinderbox? Does anyone know the Hans Christian Andersen story, the tinderbox? Do you know who Hans Christian Andersen is? <laughs> okay, good. I didn't even have to ask you to cough if you knew who he was. Um, so um, Hans Christian Andersen, the well-beloved, played by Danny Kaye. He's, we all like him. Do you all know who Danny Kaye is? He played Hans Christian Andersen in the musical. Um, and he's, all kids love Hans Christian Andersen. He's, um, he's not mean and scary the way the Grimm's brothers are. People actually live in his fairy tales. Um, okay, so here's the tinderbox, one of his best loved stories. I bring it up partly because Otto Fenichel brings it up, but not for the um, reasons that I'm going to um, bring it up. So Otto Fenichel talks about the tinderbox as a story in which there are um, there, uh, young soldiers asked to go underground and to um, pass by some guard dogs. The first um, guard dog has eyes as big as coins, the second eyes as big as um, saucers, and the third eyes as big as plates. And um, he has to deal, but he has magical powers to deal with all these dogs. So what do you imagine Autofanishel, or if you've actually, if you're the person who read it, what does Autofanishel say about these eyes of different sizes? What do they represent? Just guess. Sex. <laughs> okay, sex, <laughs> sexuality. Be more specific. Breasts. Okay, breasts, no, you're, you're too clean-minded. Could be breasts, but aren't. Yeah. Scopophilia. Well, scopophilia because they're eyes, yeah, and they can see. Um, but what else? Come on, it's the last. It's the last day of class. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> what else could they stand for? Are you going to tell me that some old fart psychoanalyst from the first half of the twentieth century? is just going to say more shocking things than you guys who have grown up with, uh, <laughs> with, with Beavis and Butthead and South Park and Family Guy are able to come up with? Seriously, shock me. 
You're saying yes? Headlights. You are saying yes. What? Headlights. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, wash your mouth out with soap. That's terrible. <laughs> Try again. Testicles? Yeah, testicles are there. Um, still kind of boring, but okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it could be like dick sizes. Um, that's one possibility. Um, and Fenichel considers that. Um, what else? It's as deranged as I can think of. Well, what else? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's as deranged as you can think of. Okay, well, all right. So here's, here's the beginning of, um, of, the, of the Tinder box. A soldier came marching down the road. Actually, I should give this to someone else. So read as sexily as possible. Who likes to read aloud? <laughs> you guys. This is just a fairy tale. It's the most innocent thing in the world. It's, what could be more innocent? I'll do it. All right, good. Um, so just read. Um, I don't think you'll find a sexual It's going to be a little bit of wanting to ask a soldier, but as sexily as you can. <clears throat> a soldier came marching along the high road, left, right, left, right. He had his knapsack on his back and a sword at his side. He'd been to the wars and was now returning home. As he walked on, he met a very frightful looking old witch in the road. Is there a phallic symbol in that, possibly? Sword. The sword, yeah. More the sword than the tree, although the tree also probably. But she can tell he's a real soldier because of his knapsack and his sword. Uh, well, you don't, it's, it's not there, right? But if you were crazy Freudian, you might say, so here's the witch. She says, oh, I can see you are a real soldier by your knapsack and your sword. Um, I'm going to give you money to do something for me, which is to climb, do you see that tree there? Climb to the top and slip down into the hole. And I'll tie a rope around you so that I can get you back um, when you're done. Um, so imagine doing that now with Peeping Tom. Um, what are the possible Freudian elements of Peeping Tom? Yeah. He's like stabbing everyone with his big uh, sword. Mm-hmm. So he's stabbing everyone with his sword. Um, how does his sword make its appearance when we finally see that happen? He unsheathes it. He unsheathes it, and before he unsheathes it, what does he do? Raises his sword. Yeah, first he raises it, 
So it goes from pointing downwards along with the other three feet of the tripod to pointing horizontally. Um, and then after it points horizontally, which measures the distance um, between him and the woman that he's, fil that he's filming, um, and that's his job, is precisely to measure that distance, and now he's measuring it very precisely. Um, after measuring the distance, which is you know, kind of impressive if you think about it, what that distance is, um, he then unsheaths it. What would that be? Uh, o Freudians? Well, it's already whipped out, as the, to use the technical language, because it's already horizontal, right? Um, so what's unsheathing it? Well, it's, it's, yes, it's a foreskin thing. Um, so then there's the sharp point of the sword, and then what does he do? Yes. Um, he penetrates her in the worst possible way, so um, thus killing her. Um, so that part is completely or relatively obvious. Did anyone not get that it was a phallic symbol? <laughs> I can turn around and you can cough. Um, and the scene, it's actually the scene with Viv where we first see it. The, um, that's when um, you see how it comes up. And you can also see it in the viewfinder, which you couldn't before. Um, so that's an interesting um, change in the way that Powell is representing what he sees through the viewfinder, is that when he kills the prostitute at the start, and when we watch um, his murder of the prostitute at the start, um, all we see is the look of terror on her, in her eyes um, as she realizes that this person filming her is also going to kill her. Um, we know he's filming her because we can hear the sound of the film. We can hear the rattle of the film. Um, and we can also see the um, viewfinder put into four quadrants. So it's not that we're only getting um, extreme subjective point of view, although we are getting extreme subjective point of view. Um, it's we know that that extreme subjective point of view is through a camera, um, just the way you know when someone is looking through binoculars um, in a movie. There are, there are certain standard conventions for um, showing that you are looking through some piece of apparatus um, through the eyes of someone else looking through that piece of apparatus. Um, but we don't see the knife then. Later, though, we do see it. We can see it in, um, first we see it, it's, it's actually really subtly done, that first we see it um, when it comes up, then we see it when it comes up and it's unsheathed, and then we see it through the lens, through the viewfinder, and we can see in the foreground, the way you can always see your own nose in the foreground, even though you don't notice it, um, we can see in the foreground, we can see um, it extended at the bottom of the screen. We didn't see that at the beginning, but we do see that um, towards the end. Um, and so, yeah, that's clearly phallic. So, but what does that have to do with scopophilia? That's the question. This is what um, you should um, either reconstruct or consult your own sense of why it seems right. That is, what is it about, um, what makes the movie effective? Um, when it's a movie which is both about um, sexual violence, which it obviously is, but also a movie about um, scopophilia, um, how are those things connected 
um, in an effective way in the movie? Why does it feel like it's not about two things, but about a single complex thing? He wondered aloud. Does it? Does it seem that that vision is sexualized in the movie? I mean, so the whole point of like killing these people, we think, is to finish this project. That's the that's what the eye thought the MacGuffin was. Uh -huh. We wanted to find out what the the project the project was going to be in its fully realized state. Right. So it just seemed like it was, you know. So he always goes back and watches those clips. Yeah. So it seems like that's the reason he's killing them for that. Okay, so he's killing them for the pleasure of um, seeing them the d die and to um, to finish the project. What exactly is the project? Or let's let's hang on to that question for a minute. That might be one version of the MacGuffin, which is what is the movie he's trying to make? What is the project that he's after completing? Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So the first so it's sexualized from the start, partly because the first thing he's filming is a prostitute um, who's inviting him upstairs. And he goes upstairs, he follows her upstairs. Um, are we seeing what he's seeing at the start when he follows her upstairs? No, she doesn't see the camera. Right. He's got the camera hidden under his coat. Um, so he's actually got it at chest height rather than um, holding it up to his um, eyes. He's not looking through the lens, um, but he's filming her secretly. Um, so she's actually looking a little bit above the camera um, at his face rather than at the camera. So we're not seeing it exactly from his point of view. We're seeing it from about a foot beneath his point of view as he's following her upstairs. But then when he gets upstairs and he pulls the camera out and then pulls the tripod out, then we're seeing it exactly from his point of view. And that's when we get her terror. Um, okay. Um, what then does... What do... What then are eyes representing? What is seeing representing... How, how should I ask this question? Um, part of what the movie's about is um, more than one set of eyes. Um, how many people's vision is thematized in the movie? How many, how much of the movie is about who is seeing what? It's not only about what he's seeing. So how much of the movie is about who's seeing what? Yeah. Okay, so the mother, the mother has a way of seeing which isn't seeing, which is being completely aware of the space around her, um, not from any point of view. Um, maybe the um, specimen scene for that would be the moment um, when he comes back um, towards the end. It's it's what initiates the last the last movement of the movie. Um, he comes back towards the end, um, and she, sa she says, Mark's here. And Helen doesn't know that, 
Uh, but she turns around, and yeah, Mark is looking through the window. Um, and then the mother says, why is he always looking through the window? Um, well, he's a peeping Tom. What else should he be doing? Um, but um, she, also, she also says she knows everything that he's doing upstairs. So she's aware of his presence um, in a way that no one else is. She always knows when he's home, when he's out, when he's arrived, when he's departing, and so on, because her other senses are so um, hyper-acute um, because she can't see. Um, so she has a different spatial sense. She has a different sense of space um, than any of the seeing figures in the movie. Um, and her sense of space is an important one. Um, in a way, it's the framing one. She's aware of all the spaces around her. Who does that make her like? Not who does that make her feel affection for, but who does it make her similar to? Yeah. A mark, I suppose, because his job is to uh, find all the reference points for measurement. Uh-huh. Okay, so he's, he's, um, he, geomet he geometrizes everything. Um, he measures things. He also knows his way around spaces in a way that others don't. Um, the mother going up to his apartment and appearing there and getting in when he's least expecting it um, rhymes with the moment in the studio when the police say, okay, everyone has to leave, and he leaves, but because he knows his way around the set, um, he can go upstairs into the rafters and watch from up top as the policemen are investigating the corpse. So there's a movement. There are two figures who are hyper-aware of the space around them. Um, and whose awareness of the space around them um, partly cashes out in the way they can move in that space upon, uh, around in margins that other people don't know exist. Um, and so there's that really interesting connection between the mother and Mark for that reason. Um, there are other connections that are made between them. Um, one of the things I wanted to show you, but I think we're just not going to have time, are a couple of really amazing graphic matches um, in the movie. So you do, does everyone remember what a graphic match is? A graphic, okay, maybe I should show you one. Um, let me just get to, or ask you to get to, um, So there's one graphic match at um, 1320. Yeah, just, yeah, start there. I think that should work. So she's about to pour some tea. Okay, stop. Okay, did you see, did you yeah. see what he did there? Um, same color liquid. And the pouring of one merges with the pouring of the other. Um, obviously, when you have um, two liquids pouring like that, it's more than just a graphic match. Technically, what a graphic match is, is when part of the way that you smooth a transition from one scene to a scene that you're cutting to is to have elements in the second scene um, be pretty much where the elements in the first scene were. So that on some neurological processing of pure vision, you're not suddenly disoriented. What you're seeing is um, the same kind of spatial scheme, even though they're frequently different objects. 
Um, so graphic matches are, sometimes they're used very effectively, and those are the ones you notice, like that one. Um, but they're a standard part of the repertory of editors. They're just part of what editors do to make the shift from um, one scene to another over a cut not be too jarring, so that you can orient yourself because you're already kind of oriented to like three or four elements in one scene. Now you have another scene with three or four elements in it, and you try to put them in the same places so that people aren't suddenly trying to figure their way out in the picture. The picture looks more familiar than it otherwise would. But when it's brought to prominence, as it's brought to prominence here, then it's more than just, oh yeah, whatever. It's you're supposed to notice it. Um, so to give you another example of um, a graphic match just like that, um, go to um, uh, around 48. Yeah, something, that, I think that might be good. Yeah, so watch the liquid again. Okay, stop. So again, you see that, that um, there's at least twice in the movie, I think there's a third time, um, but I didn't, I didn't uh, manage to find it um, for this class. There's a third time where the liquid is poured, um, and we go from one to the other, from one character to another. So obviously those are making connections. Oh, Freudians, what else is the pouring of the liquid about? Guys. <laughs> yes, thank you. Good. Okay. These, these answers are so easy. It's like, don't make them hard. They're easy. Um, but here's another one which is, which is fairly different um, at 103.30 or so. So this is when he's, uh, he's been watching them from up top in the soundstage. Um, he then drops his um, pencils from his pocket and now he's going to sneak away. Okay, I think he can start. Where are we? I thought I heard yeah. a cat. Do, do people know what that's from? Yeah. I thought I heard a putty cat. From, uh, Tweety. Yes. Tweety Bird. Um, what's the name of the cat? Sylvester. Sylvester, right, yes. Okay, good. So, go ahead. I don't want to spoil anyone's fun, but we do have a maniac on our hands. If we don't get him quickly, There'll be a third unsolved murder to report to the commissioner. So let's hurry things up, shall we? So now he's going to be caught in light. Obviously that light matters, because that's the light that he's always shining on those he's about to kill. She's okay, stop. So what happened there? <coughs> Did you notice the graphic match? A ladder uh, turns into into the knitting needle. Um, yeah, so it's the rungs of the ladder now turn into the little bits of thread in the knitting needle. Um, so again, that's a connection between the blind mother and Mark um, pouring liquid or climbing down the ladder, which is turning into the knitting needle, um, that the knitting makes her a little bit like who and Dickens? 
Madame Defarge, familiar, not familiar, sort of familiar, Tale of Two Cities, um, or who in Greek mythology? The Fates, not Penelope, the Fates. Um, and the knitting needles are also a little bit what Freudians? Phallic, yeah, that's always, that can, that's always your first go-to answer, phallic. Good. Um, so there's that connection. He is the person who's obsessed with vision and who wants to see everything. Um, she's the person who, in a sense, does see everything but without vision, is aware of everything but without um, physical vision. Um, the... Um, how else is he aware of everything? There's another way that he's very close to her that we find out at the very end. So one of the things that happens in the movie is the movies his fathers are making. The, the, the movies his father is making. Um, are they silent or sound? Silent. Yeah, they're silent. Um, there's one place where we hear his father's voice. And at first, you might think that that's, um, that that's sound, that his father's made a sound um, movie. But then we become aware, because we get a repeat of what his father's voice sounds like, that that's in his head. That is, that he's remembering what his father said when that scene was shot. But, it's, but Helen isn't, he's showing it to Helen, Helen isn't hearing what the voice says. It's only a voice in his head. And we know this because later the same voice is going to be in his head when he's just sitting, when he's just standing and musing. Um, so the, his father's movies are silent movies. Um, so where does sound come up between him and his father? Yeah? Uh, towards the end, well, at like the end of the movie where he plays the recording to his father has from when he was doing the test on it. Yeah, so at the end of the movie, it turns out that every room is wired for sound and that his father um, had been recording his screams when he was woken up and frightened in various ways, um, as well as filming him. But those two things are done separately. So that um, complete encyclopedia of sound in the house that he owns um, means that he has access, it then turns out, and he shows Helen, that he has access to every room in the house through sound, just as her mother does. Um, so that's another similarity between them. And then he plays back um, the neighbor inviting a prostitute in, he plays back um, the mother drinking, he plays back sounds from the party. He's recording everything that's, that's going on in the building, which again makes him like the mother. So here you have the most visually obsessive person in the movie being compared to the one person in the movie who can't see at all. But who else is a figure, um, we, we can hold off for, for a few minutes, but we'll probably come back. Who else is a figure, um, what other figures are um, made um, uh, into into obsessive seers, or to or what for what other figures? Let me just use the formulation I used before. For what other figures is seeing thematized? Obviously, for the victims because they see themselves about to be killed. For whom else? Yeah. There's the man in the beginning who buys uh, photographic um, photos. Yeah. yeah, and he buys the whole set along with the Times and the Telegraph. 
Um, so he is really interested in the dirty pictures, um, but he's also um, trying to camouflage that by looking like he's buying stuff to read rather than stuff to see. Um, one of the things that's going on in the movie is that there's a kind of either lumping or splitting of seeing and reading. Um, that is, um, Mark's father is a writer, and we see the whole set of his psychological studies on the shelf behind um, Mark. Um, so there are all those books that he's written. There's the newspaper that the dirty old man at the start is um, claiming to buy, and he's claiming that what he's that he's buying stuff in order to read it, just to um, mention Fenichel again. Um, not that you would have to pay too much attention um, before you get your final. Um, Fenichel begins in right outrageous style by talking about voracious readers um, and that what they're actually doing is sexual, um, that the more you read, the more you are trying sexually to incorporate what you're reading. Um, and then he goes on, as any person would, to make the natural next step, which is that um, people, which is to, to start musing about why it is that people are so interested in reading while they're shitting. Um, and you know, it's obvious that what they're doing is um, engaging in two kinds of eroticism at once. They're reading and they're shitting in what could be more sexual than either. Um, and they're nicely balanced. Um, so, hence, reading in the bathroom. Um, here, the question of reading versus seeing is um, one where if you're lumping them, they're both versions of scopophilia. Um, if you're splitting them, then, then there's seeing, which is sexualizing, and reading, which is the um, work against um, the sexual demands of always looking, always seeing. Um, what, does, what is Helen? What's her um, avocation or her vocation? What does she do when she's not um, trying to make a play for Mark? Yeah. A librarian, and what does she do in the library? She writes children's books. So she's a writer, um, and her idea is that, um, what do you remember what the stories are about? Or what the story is about? It's about a magic camera. Isn't it? Yeah, it's about a magic camera. And then the question is, does she want illustrations or does she want real photographs? Um, and that's a way of saying those, th there's a huge difference between a book and a movie, a huge difference between something made of words and something made of images, um, but she wants to bring real images, real photographs into the book. Um, so if you're lumping, then reading and seeing are being put together with the very idea that she would um, put photographs into this children's book. If you're splitting, the point is that photographs and books are um, as different as things can be. Um, the guy in the um, news agents buys um, um, the newspapers, but he also buys an album, all the photos at once. So they're kind of a book, a book of photographs, a photo book, um, but they're kind of not. They're the opposite of a book because they're filled with photos rather than with writing. Um, do you remember the first question that Mark has asked when he's 
um, filming the police investigation of the murder that he's committed the night before? Yeah. Let me ask what newspaper Yeah, what newspaper do you work for, asks someone who's suspicious of him. Do you remember what newspaper he says? The Observer, of course. Um, it, it would have to be The Observer. Um, that, that's the point. Um, why would you think that someone who was filming what the police were doing worked for a newspaper? Does that seem like a question that quite makes sense in retrospect? You might ask, you know, what newsreel do you work for? Or do you work for News of the World? Because there were new, at the time, you would watch a newsreel um, when you went to a movie. There would be cartoons, there would be a newsreel. Or at least, I don't know if they were still showing newsreels in 1960, but it was certainly very recent memory. Um, who else is a watcher in this movie? Yeah. There's the other tenant who uh, said that he notices, um, or he says to the girl that he notices that he and the uh, and Mark mm -hmm. that he's seen them together. Yeah. Okay. So there's the other tenant who's seen them together, um, and who describes the things he's noticed and also the things that he's heard. Um, I heard him say he was going to take um, photographs of your mother. Um, okay. Good. Who else? Yeah. There's the detective. Yeah, so he's being followed, and um, at first it seems that Mark doesn't know he's being followed. At first he probably doesn't know that he's being followed. So we're watching a little bit, it's a little bit like Vertigo, which is we're watching Mark, but we're also watching the person who's discreetly following Mark. Um, at the scene in, at the library, um, the other detective is down a long um, shaft, and we see him in deep focus, um, way down at the other end of a long shaft. And Mark is leaning against a wall, looking for Helen coming out of the library. Um, Helen sees him but doesn't recognize him because he's too far away. Um, and then he kind of goes, um, he leaves in order to go to do, um, to take the pictures that he's assigned to take that night. And when he leaves, we really notice the, the detective at the other end of the shaft. Mark goes off um, audience right, screen left, and down at the end of the shaft, um, the detective follows him also, screen left, um, moving parallel to Mark's motion. Um, so he's following Mark and watching him, and then Mark sees that he's seen. Um, when he's up taking photographs um, at the news agents, and he looks out the window, and now he can see that he's being followed, that someone is watching him. So he watches someone watching him. Um, and so there's that back and forth of seeing as well. What about Helen as a seer? What does she demand to see? Yeah, she wants to see the movies. Um, she, she insists on seeing them. Um, and she won't stop looking at them. And um, when she goes upstairs while Mark is off murdering um, the model, uh, she goes upstairs um, to bring him the book, which she signed for him. And um, then she sees the film um, in the projector, and then she starts playing it. 
And um, how do we know what she's seeing in that film? We don't see what she sees. So we see her seeing, but we don't see what she sees. How do we know what she's seeing? Again? We hear it. Well, um, no, because there isn't sound. We don't hear what she's, we don't hear the soundtrack. Okay, let's go to that. That's, um, maybe I can find it. It's towards the very end. So it's somewhere around there, right? Yeah, let's start from here. So what has she seen? She'll later say that she'll later use the plural, um, so she's actually seeing what's probably an edited bunch of people getting killed. Um, she'll say, "Tell me that th these aren't real; that they're just that that um, you're just making this as a film." But um, let me ask the question this way: Why is that done this way at that point? Why does Michael Powell choose with? you know, five minutes left in the movie, the last couple of minutes or credits, um, with five minutes left in the movie, um, why does he choose to um, not show us what we've already seen um, or seen most of, which are the various acts of murder? Yeah? Because we're, we're 
her watching it and her like emotions and like this is more information and it also like is capturing how she's not looking away. She's like she even at the last moment until she bumps into him like is still looking. Uh huh. You know, and that's obviously Okay. And now do you remember the um the shots that we saw of the two women getting killed, we see the prostitute getting getting murdered at the start, and we see Viv. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also important to show her reaction because it shows how similar it is to the girls in the video. Like yeah. They have yeah. Very yeah, which is, and can you say more about what those reactions are? Right, exactly. So if you, yeah, Ben. Uh, I think it's also <clears throat> important because they're showing, Mark says that he never wants to see um, Helen uh, have a face, like show fear. And now that he has, that's afterwards when he decides, like when the police come, that's when he dies. But the one thing he can't see is her having a fearful expression. And that's like the last time that we actually see it. Yeah. Um, so we do see her fearful expression. You're right, it's exactly like the expression of the um, people who've been murdered before, which is a kind of amusement and, oh, this is funny, this is playful, um, followed by a sense of, well, actually, this isn't funny, so, you know, just stop, followed by a dawning realization that it's real. Um, so um, if you were to compare her, the, the series of her expressions here to the series of expressions of the prostitute at the very start of the movie, um, I don't think they track exactly, um, but it's the same um, gamut of expressions. It's, this, it's, it's essentially they're doing the same acting job. Um, they're doing the same dawning realization of horror um, with an attempt to deny it for a while through thinking that it's, um, that it's a joke and the dawning realization that, or the dawning failure to be able to make it a joke. Um, so... Um, all right, Freudians, why, um, why would Powell, as a Freudian, why would Powell, um, what point would he be making in stressing the similarity of the expression of the person um, being murdered and the person watching the murder? watching the film of the person being murdered. I mean, it's a natural similarity. It's not like, you know, part of the point of this movie is if you need convincing that Freud has insights, this movie should help convince you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has to do with, like, well, not to, not to bring up, there's another interesting similarity, which is that if you look at, uh, like, I don't know if this tells too much about it, but another approach is that, like, you look at people watching a movie and they look at their MRIs, they're very similar. The idea is that, like, when we're watching something, and, like, we can have, like, a similar reaction, and then the, connect the next connection is that, like, you're having a connection not just with the other people that can see the same images, but even the people that are having that experience directly is similar to, to watching that happen. So that you're having something like... Like, like the real, like that you're having a real like, experience, like authentic experience that's connected with... With what you're watching. With what you're watching. Yeah, so um, 
you know, an example of this is when we talked on um, Thursday about reflex arcs where if a baseball comes heading right towards your eyes, um, your eyes will shut even if you're blind. That is, even if, even if um, there's some damage to the visual, to visual cortex so you don't see the baseball, but there's a reflex arc um, and you respond. Um, it's also the case that when you see people um, about to do something um, painful, um, if you see someone who's um, about to um, put their put their hand in in boiling water without knowing it, um, you'll have a reflex to pull your hand back. Um, and there is a kind of which I think people have overstated um, the importance of this to our to to what I call vicarious experience. That is our experience of what other people are experiencing. Um, but there is a kind of vicarious reflex that we have. Um, the reason that will tense up when someone else is, when we're watching someone um, about to um, suffer some physical trauma, um, is because it's as though we're tensing up for them, as though we're having the reflex that we want them to have. The reason will start, will gasp, is because they should be taking a breath for whatever it is that they need to take a breath for. Um, so there is a kind of reflex at a distance, and um, there's something like that going on here as well. That is, what she's watching is causing her to respond a little bit like the person she's seeing um, respond. Now, I think the complexity here, and I think Powell wants this, I mean, I hope having seen this movie, um, you guys have a sense that uh, this is an extremely deeply well thought through movie. Um, that is that there's nothing in it that is accidental or it was like, oh, that worked. Um, Powell and Pressburger were famous for the extreme care that they put into their movie making. Um, and as I say, this is Powell alone, um, but boy, did he put care into it. And there's everything in it is stuff that he thought through. Um, so if you think about it, what's happening is she is responding not to um, what you would ordinarily respond to in a movie when you have the same expression as a character in the movie, which is um, uh, shot reverse shots or intercuts between the person in danger and the danger itself. That is generally what you'll see is, um, you know, Pauline is um, um, tied to the, rail to the railroad track and the train is coming, and Pauline is struggling, and she's looking terrified. Everyone know the perils of Pauline? Is this... Do you know the phrase cliffhanger? So the phrase cliffhanger comes from very early movie making. Um, and um, all right, so quick history of movies. Um, before Hollywood, there was Ithaca, New York. And it was actually in Ithaca and in the Finger Lakes region that um, American movies were first made, partly because the scenery was so amazing. Unfortunately, if you have friends who go to Cornell, you'll know that the weather is terrible. Um, but the scenery is amazing. And um, the most famous, do you know about Dudley Do-Right? No? Dudley Do-Right cartoons? You've heard the name. Okay. Uh, isn't it a great name? Dudley Do-Right. Um, he's the hero. 
Um, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> who's just perfect as Dudley Do Right? Actually, a friend of mine produced. Um, what's the other the Brendan Fraser movie where he's in a deep freeze for thirty years? What is it? No, 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 no. He's um, he's been locked away by overprotective parents. Blast from the past. Yeah, um, yeah. So a friend of mine actually produced that. Um, unfortunately, she hasn't produced anything since. Um, but um, so early, one way that movies worked, if you saw uh, Misery, you know about this. Have people seen Misery? Um, so you know that um, the Kathy Bates character in Misery is really um, pissed at the James Caan character um, because he's writing the serials that appear with the movies every Saturday. So the way movies worked was one way you got people in the theater was you would show an episode from a long-running serial um, that would last for about five minutes. So these were five-minute episodes, and each episode ended with either the hero or the innocent whom the hero is trying to help um, about to die are in extremely serious trouble. And if you wanted to know whether they were going to survive or get out of that trouble, you would have to come back a week later. So um, even if you didn't think you wanted to see the main feature, you would go to the movies every week because every week you would be left um, in a situation where someone was in trouble and you wanted to know how they would get out of that trouble. Um, so, um, you know, that the, in modern, this is actually no longer as much your experience as it used to be, but in modern um, TV, this is what always happens at commercials. That is, that the way you get someone to watch a commercial and not to flip to a different um, show is just when you cut to a commercial is when things are at their most intense for the characters you care about. And so you'll watch through the commercial to see what will happen. So that was invented in the early 20th century in weekly movies. You would have a serial, and the serial would always end with someone in extreme trouble. And the, the standard name for that trouble is they'd be hanging off the edge of a cliff, and um, their fingers would be getting tired, and they'd be about to drop. Could they be saved? So that's called a cliffhanger the end of each week's serial, serials always ended on a cliffhanger, sometimes literally. So what happens in cliffhangers, what, and, the, and the most famous of the cliffhangers was called The Perils of Pauline. And The Perils of Pauline, Pauline is the innocent who um, has to always be saved from terrible things that are about to happen to her. Most famously, she's, um, going, she's on, she gets the villain who wants her to um, give up her property because he's an evil banker and there's a mortgage and her mother, her grandmother, I think, is blind. I mean, there are all sorts of things that are happening. Um, the most famous thing is that she is placed on um, a piece of wood that's going into, into a sawmill. So she's going to be cut down, cut in half vertically. Um, and just as she's about to hit the saw, come back next week to see if Pauline survives. Um, but the point about the perils of Pauline, the other famous thing is she's tied to a railroad track. So the point about the perils of Pauline is we may have the same expressions as she does. We, our faces may register um, exactly the same emotions that, the, that her face is registering, but it's because we see 
what she sees. That is, we see the thing that's threatening her. We see the, um, the spinning saw coming closer and closer. Um, we see the train that is thundering down the track. Um, and we see all these terrible things, and then we see that she's frightened, and that intensifies our sense of feeling the same terror that she's feeling. But we also see the object that she's terrified of. So there's both an objective and a subjective component to the to um, the similarity or the parallelism of emotional expression, of facial expression. But what Powell is doing is not only is he not showing us what Helen is seeing, but as we know from the very start, he's not showing us what the what. Um, um, Mark's victims are seeing. That is, we're seeing their murder from Mark's point of view. We're not seeing it from their point of view. So it's not that we see them and then we see the knife and then we see them and then we see the knife. All we see is them and we see Mark, we see, the, we see their faces um, coming into more and more close-up as the camera, as Mark's camera is moving towards them, but all we see is what's going on in their faces. So she is seeing something very much, what she's seeing as she sits down to watch that movie is very much what we're seeing her watch the, watching. That is, if her expressions are the same as the prostitute's expressions, then um, what we're seeing and seeing her is what she's seeing and seeing the prostitute. We're not seeing, she's not seeing anything more than we're seeing. And then that gets nailed down at the very end when Mark shows her what it is that the prostitutes are seeing, which is not so much the knife, which is what we thought was terrifying them, as their own faces in the concave mirror that's, that's approaching them. And he says, remember his line there is there's nothing, it's the line at the end of the scene we just saw, um, there's nothing more frightening than fear. And that would go, that's maybe what MRIs would confirm, that there's nothing more frightening than fear. And so that what frightens the women so much is the fear that they see on their own faces as the camera is approaching them, um, as the knife is approaching them. But we thought that they were so frightened of the knife that's about to kill them. But according to Mark, they're even more frightened by their fear as the knife is approaching them. Um, now, let me just ask directly, does that make sense? Does that claim, and he does, he does a really good job of it. The reason it's a concave mirror and not just a mirror is because you know that sort of photo booth effect of getting the entire face um, focused on the eyes and the mouth and then the entire face coming round. Um, it's like some combination between psychosis and a skull. It's almost as though the concave mirror itself is skull-like and you're seeing it from inside the skull. Um, and it's also this psychotic distortion of what's fear of what is fearful anyhow. So, so it certainly makes enough sense as a visual image that it's a scary visual image, what you're seeing as the concave mirror is approaching you. Um, 
But does it make sense? Um, and if so, if 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 not entirely, then how much sense does it make? Does that line that the that the most frightening thing is fear itself? Is that convincing to you? Do you think that's what they're afraid of as they're being murdered, the reflections of their own faces? It's fiction, so there's no true answer. But is that a convincing moment, or is that, uh, oh, how convenient? It's a really nice idea. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a nice idea. It's a really scary idea, but... Which is a nice idea. Which is nice, but... um. they feel is the metal on their neck. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's probably scarier. Yeah, I mean that seems that to me that part seems fictional. That what they're frightened of is the expression on their own faces as they're dying. Yeah. But I mean at the same time them seeing themselves and feeling the stab around the neck would be would be them seeing themselves killing themselves. Okay. Like un, like unwilling suicide. Yeah. Which, in the end, turns into his willing suicide, as he does it to himself intentionally. Yeah? It's, I think it's a combination. I mean, I feel like... I feel like like they are getting the effect that you're talking about um, when we're watching, when we're seeing the objects. Like, they're getting, like, that extra bit. So, like, it's like... Like, when we're watching the... Uh, when we're watching a movie of, like... Um, the perils of Pauline or something, and it's cutting between the different things. This is like giving like that full thing all at once. So you're seeing like, if, if you're if, if you're imagining it from their perspective, like yeah, they might feel the metal in their neck, but they're also seeing themselves feeling that there's like a kind of it's kind of like it's not maybe maybe to try to pit the fear itself over just the fear of death is a little strange, but it's kind of it all coming together in one moment for them where it's everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both, they're seeing their own fear, they're seeing, they, they, they're getting, like, this kind of uniformity of, like, of this horrible moment. They, yeah. They, they're getting all the perspective, they're getting many, many perspectives as opposed to just one, which is, which I can imagine would be very fearful, because, like, I feel like, in my own experience, um, when you can create, like, a feedback mechanism, or if you become to, begin to fixate on something that's bothering you, it, it intensifies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can believe that, that there's a feedback mechanism. You, you're more, you're displaying more fear. You see more fear. You're more fearful of your fear. And you're watching all these things converge at once. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a cool idea and all of that makes sense, except for the fact that almost everyone I know, if they were going, if something sharp was coming at them like that, they would close their eyes. <laughs> Like yeah. when something scary is happening like that, most people's reaction is to like, close their eyes so they don't have to see it uh-huh. because it's scary. Yeah, so that would be the reflex, yeah. even even um, by way of reflex. Um, what Helen does is she can't take her eyes. Notice that, that um, a way that the film makes sense of it is she can't take her eyes off what she's watching, but she gets up and she, st- and she puts stuff between her and the screen. She puts the shelf between her and the screen, chairs. She's moving back in the, in the um, lab slash screening room slash um, studio. Um, and she's trying to put stuff between her and what she's watching, but she's watching it. Um, and that, that is certainly 
a natural reaction and in a way that's a conventional film film moment when someone is in danger and there are two things they have to do simultaneously which is to try to get away from the danger but also to keep focused on it so that they can see if anything is changing so you know if there were a person with a knife in the room and Helen's that you know if you only saw that moment that is Helen backing away and trying to put stuff between her and what she's looking at um, you would think if you were just channel surfing and that's what you came upon you would think that there was someone there threatening her um, or maybe you know a rabid raccoon um, at the other end of the room threatening her that's how that scene is shot um, but it turns out what she can't take her eyes off of is the face of a woman who can't take her eyes off of, it turns out, the face of a woman who can't take her eyes off of the face of a woman who is being murdered because it's her own face that she can't take her eyes off of. It's her own mirror image. Um, so in a way what Powell is doing, and here we can simply talk, uh, talk about this as craft, is he's making it emotionally plausible that someone would be unable to look away from something this horrible, even though what they couldn't look away from is only their own facial expression. Um, and he's making that plausible, whereas if you think about it in real life, it probably isn't that plausible. If you see yourself in a mirror and you feel there's danger, you won't keep looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, you'll just run. Um, but what they do, what Viv does and what um, the prostitute at the start do, is they do something else which is very typical of movies. And I don't know whether it's typical of real life or not. Um, we're so used to it um, that it's um, something that makes perfect sense to us. Um, and it certainly made perfect sense to Freud because he talks about it a lot. Um, but I'm not sure that it actually is a real-life thing, but people getting frozen with fear, paralyzed with fear, is the, is the um, standard um, idiom or standard phrase in English, when you're paralyzed with fear. And, um, you know, I can't in real life think of situations where I've been paralyzed with fear or know anyone who has. I've seen, I've seen situations where people are in doubt which way to go, you know, that there's um, a crazy person, you know, a drunk, per a, a drunk driver is heading down towards them. Should they dive right, right or, or left? But it's not like, oh, my God, I'm so scared I can't move. Um, but being paralyzed with fear is nevertheless something that's culturally um, a very, it, it, it's, a, it's a very widespread idea. Yeah. Okay, well, so, so that paralysis, being paralyzed with fear, that's certainly an important part of what goes on in this movie. And it's certainly what happens to the prostitute. It's certainly what happens um, to Viv. And it's partly what's happening to Helen. Although she is able to move, um, she, she's giving the most naturalistic exposition of not simply taking off as fast as she can um, but that's because she also has to keep the danger in sight, which slows you down. That is, you're, um, again, you're um, making a trade-off um, between staying alert to the danger and getting away from the danger. And if you put all your eggs into the getaway basket, um, 
that might not be as wise as keeping track of where the danger is. Um, but so paralysis with fear, what do you think Freud says about that? I know you're guessing, so guess. You, you've heard that Freud thinks eyes are both penises and vaginas and also um, sphincters. Um, Why? Yeah, aroused, and how does that go with paralysis? Yes. Yeah, for Freud, like, nothing could be more obvious. Um, so his, so just to give, uh, to give the, the, um, the example, um, what's, what's his clinching example? It's not the it's not in anything that you read for today, but, but Fenish, or that, that you read for today, um, but that Fenichel, um alludes to, but Freud actually um, discusses this at some length, uh, the story of Medusa. Um, so the story of Medusa is, um, here's a woman whose hair is made of, anyone remember? Yes, <laughs> snakes slash penises, um, whose hair is made of phallic symbols. Um, and um, she is so horrific, so ugly, so horrifying that when a man looks at her, he turns to stone. Um, so what could be more obvious, says Freud, than what you have here is um, a highly sexualized description of, um, of someone looking at a woman and being aroused and hardened and stiffened, um, but in a way that, according to the story and that the story is also about, um, is being perceived entirely negatively. Now, instincts and their vicissitudes, um, the, the um, Freud essay, a lot of what that essay is about is how affects turn into their opposite. I mean, it's a stunningly brilliant essay but it's about how love turns into hate or hate turns into love, how, how um, sadism turns into masochism, how scopophilia turns into exhibitionism, um, how subjects turn into objects and objects turn into subjects. So he's really interested in reversals of that sort and really good in describing them. So the reversal here, just to tell you what he says about Medusa, um, and it's, it, it's complicated, um, but um, essentially, what you have in Medusa is what he sometimes calls the phallic woman, um, the woman who has a penis, um, but she doesn't because she has A, too many, which is a reversal of she doesn't have one at all, so castration is real. Um, so Freud, eh, here's, here's all of psychoanalysis. We have time, right? Get a cup of coffee. Oh, there's no coffee today. Oh, well. Um, very quickly, one trauma, Freud says, that young boys go through, um, very young boys go through, not a trauma that girls go through, but a trauma that boys go through, is um, that one day they see their mother naked at a time when this matters, and they are shocked to find that all that stuff that they were a little bit nervous about, which is that maybe they'd get castrated if they were bad, but they didn't really believe that, even though they were a little bit nervous about it, was, oh my God, it happened to her! She has no penis! 
and I can't stand it, says the boy and freaks out, and every messed up unhappiness of his future life begins then. Um, and so one thing that might happen under those conditions is that you might, den- if, you're a, if you're a little boy, you might deny that you have seen that terrible castrated sight of a person without a penis. Um, you might deny that you ever saw that. Um, how would you deny it? Well, one way that you deny it is you might say to yourself, well, she has a foot. That's probably where it is. I will become a foot fetishist. Um, that's Freud's explanation of fetishism. Um, another thing that you might say is, oh, I, I didn't notice she didn't have a penis because there are all those penises on her head. Um, and it's all really horrifying. Anyhow, all those penises on her head, I wish she had fewer penises. That would be good. But it just paralyzed me with fear. Um, so the boy both becomes the penis that she doesn't have, is aroused by the idea that she has lots of penises, and is also aroused by the fact that she doesn't have one. All of those things, sadism, vision, um, paralysis, all of those things come together in those kinds of scenes for Freud. Um, and he thinks this especially comes together if a little boy sees his parents having sex. That's what the primal scene is, which is mentioned by both Freud and Fenichel several times. Primal scene refers to young child sees parents having sex, cannot effing believe it, and cannot believe they're effing, and everything goes bad from then on. Um, so those are the sorts of things that uh, Michael Powell is certainly thinking about and the sorts of things to be thinking about yourselves because fun um, when you do the reading for the take-home. Okay, I guess we're done. And thank you, guys. Well, thank you. Same to you. And good luck. <laughs>